0: I can't stand a country house. First place, it makes me terribly nervous. I'm scared to death of doors, locks, people roaming around in the background, under the trees, in the bushes. I'm absolutely terrified. I'm not a bit terrified of the city.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to Dark House. My name is Hadley Mendelson. And I'm Melissa Fiorentino, we are your co-hosts. And if you're new here, each episode, we tell the story behind a famous home that's haunted or otherwise notorious. So today's house
2: is one of my all time favorite topics to research. It has been for years. I actually first came across it in a film class and it instantly became my obsession really. And all of our listeners just heard a clip of it actually, which really demonstrates how and why it became the sort of like forefather of all reality shows. And the story unfolds like a classic Gothic fall from grace. I think it really exposes the way that our culture valorizes material wealth and also this conventional domestic dynamic as the formula to reach happiness. And when it doesn't work, I think people freak out. So this story revolves around the closest thing that America has to royalty. It is a branch of the Kennedy dynasty. Let's go. I'm ready. (laughs) I had a feeling you would be into that. Today's house is Grey Gardens. And for listeners who know it, I hope to introduce you to some new stories about the property. And for those of you who don't know it, get excited because it's a cult classic and one of the main reasons is because of this documentary that was made about Big and Little Edie Beale, The Woman of Grey Gardens. It's also since become source material for many different spinoffs, including an HBO film and a Broadway production, as well as an IFC kind of spinoff with Fred Armisen and Bill Hader. So like I said, cult classic following. The HBO adaptation is the one with Drew Barrymore, right? Yes, and Jessica Lang. So all-star cast. And they both do an amazing job of like capturing their accents and all of their mannerisms and stuff, they have the same voice as Jackie O, you know, that like old school New York, but also kind of sounds Southern in a way. So they sound like that. A lot of people know the story about how they were socialites at one point up until about World War II, but then somehow by the 1970s, they were living in absolute squalor. The thing that doesn't get played up though that much is how it's probably haunted. And I think that that's obviously perfect for us to dive into and kind of explore a little more. So first, I'm going to introduce you to the location, East Hampton, and then we're going to talk about the house. And I will introduce you from there to the women who gave the house its main character moment. They are mother-daughter duo, Big Edie and Little Edie Beale. They are related to the Kennedys as they are aunt and cousin to Jackie O and then Lee Rodswell. I'll also introduce you to some other characters who lived in the home during and after the Beals, one of which actually identifies as a ghost herself, and then the other is a self-proclaimed witch. So let's start with the town, the Hamptons. If you're not familiar with the area, it's just the outermost part of Long Island. So East Hampton is where we're focusing on today, and it includes the village of East Hampton, but there's also Montauk, Amagansett, and Sag Harbor, other ritzy areas around there, It was mostly farmland until the 1800s, and at that point it became a really popular resort town for the ultra-wealthy of New York society during the Gilded Age period. And then throughout the 20th century, it was still associated with artists and more creative types, but it's one of those places where the population just booms in the summer months because people have second homes there and stuff. It's also sometimes called the Gold Coast or Billionaire's Lane or
1: the Summer Wall Street. I was thinking, it's all finance bros now. Yeah, yeah. Which is a really funny thing, too. Little Edie
2: at one point was like,
0: My days of pleasing men are over. But then I don't think American men are a bit romantic. What's romantic about an American stockbroker who you played tennis with at the age of 12 down at the Maidstone Tennis Club? I don't want to hear about his Yale days and everything.
2: Thank you for saying what we all have been thinking. Retweet. To give you a sense of what it actually looks like, there's tons of like big sand dunes, rolling ocean waves, huge trees that make a canopy over the streets. It's really gorgeous. Everything's expensive there. But if you're closer to the water, that's where it's like the bougiest of bouge. And they lived right on the waterfront on the corner of West End Road and Lily Pond Lane. So let's go there. The four acres of land that the home now sits on is in the Georgica Beach area of East Hampton. And it was purchased in 1895 by this guy and his wife, who was a newspaper heiress. And they commissioned this big time architect who designed most of the big mansions in the area for different like oil and coal tycoons to design gray gardens in 1897. They had issues with the land deed. It's kind of unclear what, but it wasn't ready for them to build it by the time the husband died. And there were all these rumors within that crowd that she had something to do with his death. Mm. Hard to find primary documents about like, what? But even the first owners having some kind of like weird darkness lurking under it, I think makes this place stand out. He left behind his large estate to her and his brother took her to court though, cause he wanted to have control of it. Classic. But she ended up winning the case. The court sided with her. But they wanted to do an autopsy on him to figure out, like, did she do something to him? And she'd cremated him already, so they couldn't do one. Nice. Interesting, right? So anyway, resolve the land issues, build the home in the early 1900s. But about 10 years later, she sold it to the president of a coal company. And then his wife, Anna Gilman Hill, imported concrete walls from Europe, I think Spain specifically, to enclose the garden. And then she also hired a landscape designer who helped bring the garden to life. And that's why the house is called Grey Gardens, because of all these pastels mixing with the sand dunes, the cement wall, and then the sea mist.
1: I was going to say, I feel like maybe I'm thinking more Nantucket, Cape Cod, but I feel like every front yard or the edge of people's properties in the Hamptons has purple or pink hydrangeas.
2: This wasn't just like a little window box in the front of the house. Okay. According to some accounts, it's 28 rooms. Some people say it's fewer rooms, but by all accounts, it's really big and considered a mansion. So it's funny though, because from the outside, it looks quite homey and discreet, which I feel like that's kind of classic wasp, like look modest, but actually it's massive. So it's shingled from the outside. And then there's these really pretty shutters that are painted in a sage green and the trim is painted in that like pastel color too. There's really pretty diamond cut arts and crafts style windows, a little pitched roof on the second floor. There's a big spacious front porch entry, plenty of outdoor space to hang out on. And it opens up to this grand foyer with a big staircase that feeds up into the second floor area. Mm -hmm. It's like not overwhelmingly large and gaudy looking, but it's big. Mm -hmm. um, And the layout is actually still the same today, which I think is really interesting.
1: Yeah, definitely. So one last thing I'll say about
2: the house right now is that Something about it feels like it kind of absorbs the energy of the people who are living in it. So when the house is thriving, so are the inhabitants. And then when they're sick, the house looks sick.
1: Interesting.
2: So by 1923, the Beals move in, and that will bring me to introducing you to them.
0: Gould and Mother made this record 1934. He was Mother's accompanist. You know?
2: just heard little Edie playing her mother's old record. So let me introduce you to her. Edith Ewing Bouvier Beale. She refers to herself as Big Edie. Okay. So that's what we're going to call her. She was born in 1895 to a very wealthy attorney and judge. And he would regularly talk about how the Bouviers were descendants of French nobles. That is not true at all. They were actually like cabinet makers, but it kind of, I think gives a glimpse. He literally wrote it in a book too, that he like gave to the family. Be delusional. (laughs) Yeah, and also just like vain and wanted the family to like buy into this mythology. He was manifesting. Yeah, sure. And Big Edie grew up going to Lasada, you know, the compound that Jackie O went to. Okay. Like she grew up going out to Long Island, aka the Hamptons, and it kind of became famous for that, but that was her grandparents' house. Big Edie grew up in this ultra wealthy environment as well. Okay. And she was always known as mischievous as a kid, But I think what people really mean by that is that she was independent and she was a talented musician. She was actually professionally trained as a singer, but she was really only educated to be attractive to suitors. So it was frowned upon if she even considered pursuing her interests professionally, but she wanted to.
1: Lame.
2: Yeah, I know. Um, So they also, do you know what the Carlisle Hotel is? It's like a classic old piano bar in the Upper East Side. That site is where Big Edie actually grew up. It used to be a house which is, I think, so interesting. And then she had some siblings. She had twin little sisters and she had two brothers, one of which was Jackie O's dad. What's his name? So his official name is John Venue Bouvier III, but people call him Blackjack. So I'm going to do that because it's easier to say. And then by 1917, when Big Edie is only 22, she married somebody who worked for her dad, who was over 10 years older than her. His name is Phelan Beal Sr. They lived in a big fancy apartment in the Upper East Side and he gifted her a chauffeur and a Benz limo and that's how she got around. So you can see she's like, you know, kind of living the life of luxury, but still not expected to have any interests of her own outside of domestic life.
1: I mean, I'm torn because like I would love a chauffeur. Yeah,
2: I know exactly. Right. It's like, do I have to pick? Can I have both? (laughs) But together they had three kids. Edith bouvier Beale was born in 1917, and this is Little Edie, our big star for today. Three years later, Big Edie had a son and then another one, so there are three kids in total. Little Edie was a lot like her mom in Beauty, Brains, and she also loved performing, going to the theater. She still faced similar issues and being discouraged by her family to pursue anything really in a real way. For example, she loved ballet, and her dad was mad at her, for practicing so much because he thought that it made her ankles look fat. Oh my God. She was told throughout her life over and over, like she needed to get married. And that was where her main value was and her beauty. And she needed a husband to support her. So as I tell you about her, I actually read this book that her favorite nephew's wife got published. And it's a journal that little Edie wrote in 1929, which is amazing. A lot of the things that she says throughout are really prophetic and also kind of give you a good sense of who she was even later in life it's called I love this I only mark the hours that shine she literally wrote that as an 11 year old on the cover to give it a title
1: it sounds a lot like when we talk about I'm thinking I guess a little bit darker but how we talk about how social media is just a highlight reel and you talked about already how they were kind of like the original reality stars yes so it feels like she already knew I love that comparison. And
2: also she was kind of like, ugh, already living in her dream world. Like I'm only gonna really think about the good stuff, which is a good attitude until maybe it inhibits your ability to handle anything practical in life. (laughs) But you can kind of tell too that there are issues in the house bubbling up. And this is, you know, the year the stock market crashed too. So that might explain some of it, but I just wanna read you one little clip. This is about her dad and her mom. She says, My, how he was mad. I wouldn't even listen. Mother locked herself in her room and dad got drunk and began to swear. And then the following day she goes, daddy has been simply awful all day. If I was married to him, I'd be divorced in a second and tell him to get out. But then she later describes him as her poor, handsome, hardworking, tired dad. And then she says, I always feel as if dad is a stranger. So that's sad. Mm Mm-hmm. She's constantly going between New York City, this like amazing apartment, and her school, Spence, which is still like one of the most elite private schools for girls in New York City and the world probably. But she also has a nanny, a chauffeur, and she is really close with her mom and her mom's entire family having dinner with her grandma like all the time. So also at this point, Big Edie clearly prefers being out in East Hampton at Gray Gardens. It's her one true home. She gets to be away from her husband, who doesn't really let her sing and dance and have fun. And that's like her passion in life. And Outside of the financial stress, that's the biggest point of tension. I would think that like Phelan married her knowing that she was like that, but it seems like he was really embarrassed by her more bohemian qualities. So they were officially separated by the point that little Edie was 13 years old. Wow. And this is in the early 30s. Then little Edie graduates from Miss Porter's in Connecticut. That's like a finishing school. It's the same school actually that Jackie O and Lee also graduated from. Also, just want to mention, little Edie is the oldest grandchild of all of those kids.
1: I was going to ask, what's the age difference between... She's 11 years older than Jackie. Oh, okay. That's a lot. Jackie was born the year that she
2: wrote that journal. And it's funny because Jackie's dad was apparently disappointed it was a girl. (laughs) I know. So from there, she's clearly a socialite. And she's like known as beautiful body Beale around town. Wow. And she's super tall has light hair, blue eyes, but she's not like unapproachable. So she had no trouble finding suitors or dating when she was younger. Apparently, J. Paul Getty was one of her suitors, one of the richest men. I think the movie about him is called Richest Man in the World. Wow, He's an oil tycoon. And then another person she dated is Joe Kennedy Jr., the oldest Kennedy brother, so JFK's big brother. And he sadly died in a plane in World War II And that's apparently the reason that they couldn't follow through with the engagement. That's kind of like up for debate. Wait, so
1: she was going to be a Kennedy?
2: Yeah. But she's a bit of an unreliable narrator, I guess. And there's no like actual proof. She was a Deb. She had a coming out ball at the Ritz. And her brother later said, like, we did all that Gatsby stuff. Okay, But by the time it's like the late 30s and early 40s, A lot of her contemporaries did die in the war. And I think that age gap between her and Jackie is worth noting there. That's a hard time to be coming of age, especially in a time where you're being told your whole life, you need to get married. And then every guy your age is like at war.
1: Wow. I never thought of it that way. So I'm just
2: going to read you one last little thing from her book when she was little about not wanting to get married. Because I think that gives us some insight into like, even though everyone else saw that as her only option, she certainly didn't feel like it was. She wrote this. My last two pages have been very solemn and serious. Now I come to the point of who am I? Have I any ambition? Shall I get married if the right man comes along? Have I really got the brains enough to get away from marriage and children? I should like to start out as a chorus girl on the stage or dance in a nightclub. Anything different from the usual routine in life, perhaps a career on the stage than a small apartment and write a few books. How about that?
0: Is it perhaps now women are going to get what they want out of life? I don't know. They may have a chance now.
1: Good for you, Evie. Dream big. (laughs) She's not asking for that much. No, I mean, it's funny that she's like, oh, could I be smart enough? I feel like she means like, how do I outsmart the
2: system and not have to get married? Yeah, intense. And she is really smart. I, one, didn't have the discipline to write my journal every day. She sounds so sophisticated. Me being like, I've come to the point of who am I at 11? Yeah, right. I know. So throughout the 40s, though, she continued living in New York City. During this era, she had an affair with who she always considered the love of her life. He was a married man, Julius Krug. He was a politician and she calls him Captain. And I think their breakup may have had something to do with why she went back to Grey Gardens, but again, kind of up for debate. At the same time, this is all happening with little Edie. Big Edie is living in Grey Gardens and it's kind of a hard decade for her. Her mom dies, Big Edy's son gets married and she goes to the wedding and then she has a massive falling out with her own dad while she's there. Apparently it's because she was dressed inappropriately according to his standards and it led to him actually disowning her, which explains a lot of the lack of money later in life because she was supposed to get a good sum of his estate, but it was reduced by a lot. But even the money that he gave her when he died was controlled by Big Edy's sons. What about her husband, the guy who worked for the dad? So- He is about to divorce her. Yikes. I know. So they basically gave her an allowance of 300 a month and it was for both her and little Edie. And that's, I think, a little over 4,000 today. Wow. That's nothing in New York. Now in 46, around the same time, she gets a telegram from her estranged husband that he's divorcing her and it's sent from Mexico. So he's like off with somebody else now. And she received child support, but no alimony. And she got to keep Grey Gardens. It's a massive house that they have to keep up and no staff. So it just wasn't enough money, but she wanted to stay in it. It was her home, like we've talked about. So little Edie's brothers are trying to get her to move out of there because they know that it's just a money suck. And also because it would be easier for her to manage a smaller place on her own. And maybe that would have prevented the eventual squalor that they have to live in. Hmm. So during this time, even though everything's hard, like they're still functioning normally, whatever. Little Edie is living at this place in New York City that's for women. And she's trying to pursue a career in show business. But by 1952, she is pressured by her mom to move back. But it was also because Big Edie just could not afford to keep sending her groceries and stuff. And her dad wasn't either. So she didn't have any way to support herself and she needed to just come back. A few years later, the dad died. This is now in 1956. So money was really low. And they continued to socialize, go around town, making new friends, staying active. And they went to this place a lot called the Sea Spray Inn. And while they were out, they met this man named Tom Logan. He was an ex-rodeo cowboy like at Madison Square Gardens. Oh my God. I know, funny. Um, And he was a heavy drinker, but he was infatuated with Big Edie and she didn't really care that he was a big drinker, even though it meant that they had to constantly be like bailing him out of jail because she just wanted a man around the house. So she like invited him into the home in exchange for helping with little repairs, keeping it up, things like that.
1: Wow. This is all out at Grey
2: Gardens. Yes. Okay. I'm also now going to introduce you to another important character who is going to end up living in Grey Gardens for a while as well. Lois Wright is her name. And she met the Edies also at the Sea Seaspray Inn in the Hamptons. And she grew up in East Hampton. She's the one who identifies as a ghost. <laughs> Basically, because she takes on this role of being like a little observer and she feels invisibilized throughout her life and just kind of like an outsider, but not in a negative way, really. Mm. She's also highly spiritual. So I think that's part of it as well. She's very bohemian, fits in with them perfectly because she doesn't want kids or a husband either. And she reads people's palms for a living. So she's a palmist. And she read some very famous people's hands like Betty Davis. Wow. They relied on Lois and other friends for transportation. So they got really close very quickly. And this is a really nice description of little Edie. She says, no matter the subject, somehow she made every conversation sparkle with delight. And she was also always a trendsetter wearing fabulous, colorful scarves that she would keep closed with a really amazing old brooch. And it was hard to tell because of these amazing outfits and also keeping up with this lifestyle that they were running out of money. So Lois said she could barely notice, but one thing that kind of gave them away was that they were getting craftier and craftier with their headscarves. They'd be made out of like tablecloths or drapes or whatever they found. But little Edie was never embarrassed or apologetic about it. She had so much confidence and she would even call them quote unquote costumes. So she always was sort of performing. And I think this is what made her such a camp icon later on because that bohemian personality and like colorful eccentric style is a precious quality, I think, that a lot of people who don't always fit in resonate with. And the fact that she's turning it into something empowering. Mm -hmm. So by the late 50s, Big E.D. is now in her 60s. It's been some time that they've been out in the Hamptons, but they're just living a normal life. Apparently, when she was out at a party once, someone broke in and stole some antiques. And there was actually like a big scandal a couple of years ago about a gallery in East Hampton having a portrait of Jackie O from when she was a little kid that was in Grey Gardens and that someone probably stole. Wow. Yeah, so when someone came into the house and took some of their valuable antiques, she got more and more reclusive. Yeah. And now we're in the 1960s. So that also is when JFK is inaugurated. And little Edie actually went to the inauguration. And apparently she said something to JFK's dad being like, I was the golden girl. I almost married your other son who's dead. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) She just like does not care about any kind of conventional etiquette or anything, I don't think. No filter. No filter. And also just like really charming in a weird way. But Big developed arthritis. So she preferred to spend all of her time upstairs and climbing was difficult. It sounds like she needed more care around this time. And I think that this is when death started to creep in to Grey Gardens. Wow. Lois would come over sometimes and she said that it was starting to look super overgrown. For example, what used to be a gravel driveway was then covered in like Thick overgrowth greenery. And there was an old car that now looked like scrap metal, but you could see that the door was still open and a key was still in the ignition. What? Yeah. It has that frozen in time quality. Absolutely, as do the women, which is again how they're like parallel to one another. In 1964, Tom Logan had at that point been living with them for about a decade and he slept on a cot in the kitchen. And one morning, Lois gets a frantic phone call to hurry over because Tom is dead in the kitchen. And she's the first person they called. What? Yeah. Then she was like, why didn't you call 911? But she goes over there and she remembers him coming back to Grey Gardens with pneumonia because he would kind of like venture off and have a bender for a few days and then come back every once in a while. So he wasn't the most predictable or reliable handyman slash roommate. But she doesn't remember thinking, oh, he's on the brink of death. He just seemed a little bit sick. Mm-hmm. So they eventually called the police and his body was taken off the property without too much fanfare. But the thing is, is when Tom was on a bender, no one would really come and help them clean up around the house. And so I imagine that when he died, that was probably a pretty big turning point for things getting much worse in the house and conditions just you know, deteriorating. So they also inherited a ghost. A lot of people would blame unexplained things like apparently scissors and soap in particular would always go missing. Hmm. And they would always be like, oh, Tom is probably, I don't know, is he crafting? I'm not sure. Cutting his beard. Yeah, maybe. And this also wasn't long after JFK was assassinated. Creepy. Yeah. They were in a period of mourning because they were a close family. I think a lot of people think they were completely isolated, but they spoke on the phone daily with friends. One of her big E.D.'s sons and little lady's brother actually lived nearby and would like sometimes come over. So they weren't like totally alone. It was really cluttered, but it wasn't like uninhabitable. Okay, I don't know if you've ever seen Hoarders. It didn't quite look like that yet, but it was like lots of stacks of papers, mm-hmm. collections of things that they just never got rid of. Lois does describe that in the entry hall or rooms that weren't used as much, it was covered in cobwebs. Ugh. Yeah. So it was like, oh, someone needs to dust for sure. And also, they probably started to sell off some of their old furniture, so it looked kind of empty and abandoned in certain parts of the house. That's creepy. Yeah. And by the late 60s, the house was kind of on the brink of poverty, but then still straddling that former extreme wealth. It almost reminds me of, to give you a visual, Titanic when you see the shop. That's
1: what I was thinking. Really? Literally, I was going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm getting a Titanic visual. Yeah. Yeah. Even though obviously the those comparison shots are way more drastic, but just that's exactly what I thought of.
2: I don't even think it is more drastic. Like this place almost looks like it was a sunken treasure underwater. That's how like deteriorated it had become. Gross. That image of the chandelier with like moss growing over it or whatever, like it's yeah. kind of the vibe that you get here. So this, I think just a quick revisitation to Edie's journal when she was 11. I think it helps give me a sense of how she was able to live in that condition. She wrote, my, it seems good to be home. Home's just a home, even though it can be a
1: palace or a cellar. It sounds like just that like home is where her mom is, which is so you know such a nice sentiment, but like clean it up. Yeah. And also like a little bit codependent. But to be so dependent on other people to do the cleaning. Yeah. And so by
2: the early seventies, the home is in super poor shape and they were just more and more reclusive at this point. Big Edie was in her late seventies and then little Edie, was in her 50s. Okay. And there was an expose written in the National Examiner that was like a smear piece about how the house was just completely uninhabitable and like overgrown raccoons were taking over the place. They said that there were like cat feces found all throughout the house and it was just falling apart.
0: Cats going to the bathroom. I'm glad somebody's doing something they
1: want to do.
2: And so this got the attention of the town and they actually came over to like do an inspection of it. And they were like, if you don't get this back up to code, then you're going to get evicted. Hmm. It really traumatized them. They sent over people from the Suffolk County Board of Health and they brought a fire hose, opened the door, like broke in basically, and just like hosed the place down to quote unquote clean it, which is like a really bad idea that doesn't clean anything. It just causes mold. Oh, man, you know
1: it was a man. It it was definitely not a woman.
0: I
2: get very sad when
0: I.
1: I
2: know, and so I also just find it interesting because they've been policed their whole lives. Like Biggie's dad cuts her out of his will because he doesn't like her outfit, and then. Now there's these people being like, you're not allowed to live like this.
1: Well, I was just wondering like, A, why did the newspaper or whoever even bother? I know that they're like a well-connected family, but like mind your own business. And also if they owned the home, can you be evicted from a home you own?
2: I think if it's not up to code, you can be. And the whole thing was like, they wanted Big Edie to be taken away to a hospital where she could get like cared for because they were kind of playing up the fact that she was older, but she was still like fine. And then Little Edie, they were like, She says that they were gonna charge her with a misdemeanor for letting things get that bad. I think the main issue was like, you know neighborhoods where they get really pissed if you don't
1: manicure your lawn. Like a homeowner's association.
2: Yeah, we're in the most expensive zip code in the US. Mm -hmm. So these people want their houses to look nice.
1: You're not allowed to have a haunted house there.
2: Yeah. But one thing that I think most people would agree on is this. There were piles and piles and piles of trash so, in some rooms where they put most of their trash, it almost looked like you were standing inside of a dumpster. Also, there were so many cats on the property at this
1: point. Did anybody talk about a smell? Yeah. People said that it was kind of like a punch to the gut. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking like everything you've already told me. But then when you say rooms full of trash, like what does that smell like? Not good, I don't think. <laughs> Not terrible.
0: I your room's terribly dirty. It's gotta be clean. Not tonight, Geraldine. I can
2: hardly sit here. I love that smell. I thrive on it. But there is still an explanation for it. And it comes down to the same thing that this whole story has been about, and it's money. It costs money for people in East Hampton to get their trash collected. No way. And they simply just couldn't afford it. Yep. Still today
1: or just back then?
2: No, I think still today. But here's the thing lack of a car, where are they supposed to go with it? Like my response would be like, okay, I'll just drive it to the dump myself if no one's going to pick it up, but they couldn't get anywhere. Tom's dead. Tom's dead. They don't want to ask their friend Lois, like, hey, can we put
1: piles of trash into your car? I think the sons should be charged with negligence, especially the one who lives nearby. Where are you? I know. He felt like his hands were tied. He was like,
2: I want to help you, but I can't if you insist upon keeping up this massive house that is just... Difficult to manage. But at this point, he does step in and agree to pay the back taxes on that property. Oh, God. Because it kind of, at this point, they needed help from family. I also do think that to a certain degree, they were all right with their lifestyle. And they also kept all of the cats around because it helped keep the rat problem at bay. Oh, no. So there weren't that many rats, actually, at all. Like you'd think vermin would be attracted to so much trash, but it was some raccoons who had a name. His name was Buster, the main raccoon in the house. Holy shit. Yeah. But the cats were the ones who were seen as pets and like entertaining pals. They were mostly kept in the bedroom so that the raccoons wouldn't get them. So there were certain descriptions and explanations around why they made these decisions. It wasn't just like absolute chaos, I guess. It sounds like absolute chaos. Yeah, I think for most people. But one theory that's interesting I found online is that maybe there was black mold that was kind of impacting their executive functioning abilities, which would make sense because the roof wasn't up to code because when it rains and then it weakens the floorboards, like that's actually dangerous, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it also just like makes things decay. So then it was the Titanic. (laughs) Exactly. That's why I was like, it almost looks like it's underwater. Gross. And then another theory that I read was that there's this interesting kind of parasite, interesting is a generous word here, but it develops in cat feces. And there's actually lots of studies about it because it's really dangerous for human fetuses. So women who are pregnant are discouraged from cleaning out a cat box, for example. They haven't done studies on people, but it's called toxoplasmosis. And apparently what it does is in mice, they're usually afraid of cats, right? Because that's their main predator. But mice are attracted to their urine when cats have this toxoplasmosis. So it almost has this mind control element where attracts its prey to it and I think I mean I don't know if there's any validity to this but it kind of reminds me of like oh maybe the whole crazy cat lady trope is rooted in something
1: else there's a science behind it yeah I don't know if that's true but it sounds a little bit like pheromones or whatever where it's like Yeah. You think somebody's sweat smells good. Yes. Yes. Like
2: attraction. I think that might explain why they're not like so overwhelmed by the smell. Also just getting used to it. But they were really, really paranoid at this point that people were going to take the property away from them. And for good reason, people were threatening to do so. Apparently like little Edie wouldn't leave the door unlocked for more than like a few minutes. Mm -hmm. That's just good practice. Yeah. I mean, I was like, me too, but she's really obsessive about it and they don't have keys. So someone always has to be home to let you back
1: in. How do they not have keys? They just don't.
2: I mean, it's the same reason why, why did they leave the key in the ignition in the car in the yard years ago?
1: They're the type to just, they lost the key a long time ago and they can't replace it now. Yeah, it's like, well, I don't know. I just never got around to it.
2: But this kind of invasive event from the county really solidified their fear of outsiders and they just didn't, trust anybody. They kind of gained notoriety as local celebrities around the same time that Lee Radziwill was living in Montauk for the summer with Peter Beard, who was a photographer. And he was good friends with Andy Warhol. So lots of like New York City artist types. And she wanted to create a documentary about her nostalgia at Lasada, the family house that I told you about earlier. And Peter, who is an artist, like recommends, oh, why don't you work with David and Al Maisel's who had just released the documentary Gimme Shelter in 1970 about the Rolling Stones. She was like, oh, I have the perfect person to narrate the documentary. It's my Aunt Edie. She has, you know, that again, old accent that is really romantic and funny and just, she would be great at it. And she also has a beautiful voice. Mm -hmm. So she keeps trying to go to the house, knocking on the door and it's really hard to get a hold of them, but eventually she does. And like I said, it's around the same time that the raid happened. So basically lee sees the place her and jackie pitch in to one make all of these like not minor renovations but they weren't like redoing the whole house they were doing things like we'll paint over the old wallpaper Hmm. we'll pay to clean up and have all of the trash removed there was no indoor plumbing (gasps) i mean she moved into the house in 1923 i'm sure there were certain things that needed some updating did they have like an outhouse I honestly don't know. I don't want to, you know what? I don't want to know. I didn't even want to know. And she also got rid of like a lot of the upholstered furniture, but there were certain things that she was like, they can just keep this. But they did pass the inspection at that point. And in this movie that ended up coming out in 2018 called That Summer, it's archival footage that they had shot for what Lee wanted to create as a movie back then. But it just never ended up getting made because when Alan David Maisels went over to meet the Edie's, they were like, this is the team that we need starring in our film. So they scrap the that summer movie, but you can watch it now. And it has a lot of old footage of Lee walking around the house, cleaning everything up and kind of like overseeing the renovations and stuff. So again, they're not totally reclusive. They do have a relationship with their family. In that movie, at one point, little Edie overhears her mom on the phone with Lois and she says...
0: Well, Lois, darling, I wish you could come over. You might have a little fun. Yeah. You don't I want to come. Something. Why is it too far? I want to tell Lois something. Well, why Lois. don't you get in on the kill? Everybody's dying here. Well, Edie wants to say hello. Here you are. I tell Lois this. Hello, Lois. I made visual contact today. I saw somebody in Mother's room. Yeah, I have pierced the veil. He please yep. don't talk like that. He please. I was not able to identify. I was not able to identify. I didn't see the whole body. He please, Lois would be very upset. Please, please don't do that. I was very excited about the whole thing because I, I went downstairs now and, and and I looked for the workmen. There were no workmen. Correct. Oh, oh there! I can hear them.
1: Maybe. I don't know, Lois. You did better look getting into
0: very, very pretty. dangerous territory. You better look pretty. Yeah. What about me? I made no
1: identification. I saw no features and no face. I believe her.
2: Yeah, so you can kind of tell right then, like, oh, her and Lois are, they already know at this point
1: that there is something in the house that's happening. Well, I like that she says she pierced the veil because it sounds, we talk about portals a lot, but it sounds like that. that- mm-hmm. In one of these rooms, there was a specific spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now it's 1973 The
2: renovations have been made. The Maisel brothers begin filming Grey Gardens. And this is the documentary that became really famous and gained a cult classic following. And there was not heating in every room. So Big Edie and Little Edie decided to move two twin beds into one upstairs bedroom. And it was smaller and easier to manage than Big Edie's primary bedroom that she was in before. Little Edie has said that she felt this would help her keep an eye on her mom, who at this point needed like near constant care and was pretty much bedridden. They also mentioned that Big Edie was starting to become, quote unquote, forgetful. And Lois was kind of troubled by her odd behavior at night. That's what she calls it. But she does say that Big Edie was still mostly lucid for most of the waking hours. And Lois gifted her the rolling chair that her own mother used to use towards the end of her life. But she would get up and try to go outside and get some vitamin D and stuff. But it's interesting because the documentary is mostly shot within that one room. And you see how codependent they are because they're living in the same room. But there is, again, an explanation behind why they are living in the same room.
1: To think about how this whole house, but the documentary stays sort of stationed in one place feels also Mm -hmm. kind of the way that like they have access to the whole world if they were, I mean, I know it has a lot to do with money, but also I was thinking about how It has to be these two nieces that come help them. And again, where are the two sons? Where are the sons? It's so annoying. I know. One of the
2: sons lived in Oklahoma, but yeah, still. The documentary is ironically one of the most beautiful and fashionable films, in my opinion, that's ever been made. And I say ironic just because you're like also looking at the house that even after all these renovations, like there's still a raccoon eating Wonder Bread in the hallway. Cat feces everywhere. I don't think it's everywhere, but like, where are they going? You know what I mean? Like they have Mm -hmm. to lay newspaper down everywhere and they're like crawling all over the bed with them. No. But here's the thing. Their ultimate dream, both of the Edie's, was to be performers. So I feel like they were really happy to be in the film and a lot of reviews and critics will kind of talk about how they think that it was exploitative. But little Edie herself loved the movie as did big Edie and they remained in close contact with the measles. Mm -hmm. So they deliver an amazing performance, which is not surprising. You got your picture taken
0: again. On I mean, the other star, turn around. No, yeah,
2: you are. But the actual film, like I said, is really revolutionary because there's no voiceover narration, there's no reenactments, no staged interviews, there's no soundtrack. It's very minimalistic. It's pretty raw. It feels honest, but you kind of feel like a voyeur, and you're like, I'm not really supposed to be seeing this. It feels kind of invasive. And the idea is that there's just this like camera observing the women, though you might hear the filmmaker is asking a question every now and then. But the result is that little Edie seems like she's just rambling at the camera for the most part, even though she thinks she's having a conversation with them, but it feels intimate for that reason. And the whole movie is basically them like dancing and singing all day and talking about their alternative lifestyles and reminiscing about the past a lot, which is again, a really interesting way of thinking about how the house itself is like trying to hang on to this former life. But Little Edie has this famous line about the past and the present fusing. And Lois also, when she lived there, talked about how it felt like you never really knew what time it was.
1: It's
2: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you know what I mean? It's awfully difficult. So the sense of linearity within the actual movie is disrupted, I think, even when you're just viewing it. They kind of come across as like competitive sisters cutting each other down, bantering a lot. And I'm not going to get into everyone's theories about how it's a really toxic dynamic because I think one thing that's overlooked is she's super elderly. And I don't wanna like diagnose from afar, but little Edie herself said her mom was getting confused and would like throw things around in the middle of the night. Yeah, So I don't think it's necessarily reflective of what their relationship was their whole life, but they bicker a ton and it's, it's pretty funny. Throughout the movie too, little Edie is like acting like a classic Hollywood starlet and it feels kind of like a scary Gothic movie. Mother's giving her all this S H I T, so I went and told them things about the family.
0: But you see, in dealing with me, the relatives didn't know that they were dealing with a staunch character. And I tell you, if there's anything worse than a staunch woman, S T A U N C H, there's nothing worse, I'm telling you. They don't weaken. No matter what.
2: When you're watching it, you're like, is this a thriller? Is it a comedy? Is it artsy and campy? Is it a tragedy? Like, there's no really one genre that it fits into neatly. And again, viewers are seeing right in front of them this weird juxtaposition between poverty. And then it'll pan to houses in the neighborhood and you're like oh that's a fancy neighborhood
1: it reminds me a little bit of like the first time seeing paranormal activity and being like is this real is this real footage is this fake like you don't know what's oh, happening i haven't actually seen it oh don't don't you, you wouldn't like it i don't think i would like it. i think i'd freak out Yeah, don't. It's also funny because
2: like little Edie's fancy education and also just her natural intellect, I think, are also remnants of their former life. She's always making references to highbrow literature. And you would love this part. She always is reading about astrology. Love. There's this one famous scene where she's reading with her magnifying glass because she can't find her glasses. (laughs) And she's like,
0: The Libra husband is not an easy man to please. The monotony of domesticity is not to his liking. But he is a passionate man and a respecter of tradition. All I have to do is find this Libra man.
2: Which, like, who doesn't? Although,
1: I don't know. It's my rising sign, so be easy on it. No, I just, I don't want to derail, but I I read recently about how Libras are so, they, they appreciate justice and sort of fairness, but they'll also do anything to keep the peace, including, like, lying. Yeah, no, it's really
2: annoying. But basically, like you were saying, yes, they're in this house and all they have to do is step outside and they're at the beach. And here's the thing. Another film came out in 2006 because there was this like resurgence when um, the Broadway play came out and then soon after the HBO film. So Al Mazels, who was still alive, strung together all this unreleased archival footage in a different version of Grey Gardens. It's called The Beals of Grey Gardens. It's to me more realistic. Like you'll actually see them interacting with Lois. You'll see Little Edie going for a swim, she goes to church. She's a devout Catholic. She has to call the fire department at one point because I guess the raccoons like chewed through some wires and created a fire. Jeez, buster. I know, exactly. I am going to tell you a little bit about Lois's experiences in the house because she, like I have said a few times now, has lived in it. And it was during the like way end of production on the documentary, they cut her out of the film. And that's kind of why she identifies as a ghost for the most part. She has two books that I read. One is her journal from her time living there, like a log book essentially. And then the other one is more of a memoir. And she said that while she lived there, despite the rundown nature, you could always smell the salty sea breeze, the honeysuckle and roses in bloom, and hear the sounds of the ocean waves crashing.
1: I don't know if I believe the sense, but I'll believe the the sounds.
2: Yeah. Maybe you just have to step outside. But okay. So she was mostly living there while they were doing press for the movie. So little Edie would actually go into the city quite a bit to do press events. And it was always this huge orchestrated event. It was never simple because Big Edie did not want to be left alone for one second. Mm. And by alone, I mean like not even left upstairs alone. Like you can't go down to the kitchen. Wow. Yeah. And because of that, within that room, everything was in there. A mini fridge, a hot plate where she would cook on all the cats. But this is the room with the veil? It's actually not the room with the veil. That was her mom's primary bedroom, but- Okay. It's on the same level, so maybe that's
1: something to think about. Yeah,
2: But apparently, I love this description of Little Edie being excited about the movie. She says, this is Lois rating. Little Edie is doing a lot of jumping and stamping around the upstairs hall, as she is most excited about the movie now. She will dash over to me, give me a hair yank, shout about something or other, and then rush off. Big Edie trying to keep her calm by using her wit and ordering her concerning the running of the house. The real Grey Gardens must remain as if nothing is happening in New York City. I wonder if it's possible. So she's a rambunctious woman. <laughs> it reminds me of Eloise at the Plaza. Yes. Okay. I love that you said that because the next thing that I want to tell you is that every time the Edies would get a phone call, Lois described it as if they were chatting from a lovely little suite at the Plaza
1: Hotel and she calls it their cover-up attitude. First of all, I need a cover up attitude. Second of all, <laughs> it just reminds me of like, if you took Eloise and you took all her money away. Yes. Let's say she still has her nanny, but then she would still be like, well, I live at the plaza. You know what I mean? Like she's not
2: going to let go. Yeah. And they're always eating quote unquote pate that is like maybe cat food. Oh no. But they, I don't know. They have a great imagination. So good for them. Do you
1: see why I love them? I definitely think they're cool and you can see what's admirable about them. But at the same time, you're like... Stressed for them in a way. Totally, totally. Just because you, knowing how people are rude and are going to like look in on them and judge, but also just know the cat feces is really not good and the trash.
2: Yeah, totally. Anyway, I wanted to tell you about some of the ghost stories that Lois has because she's the one who has the most of them and also just documented them really well. Obviously, Little Edie believed in spirits and saw some in the house, mm-hmm. especially her favorite one was Captain, the man who she was having an affair with right before she left New York in 1952. And she always was saying, like, it's, it's probably Captain or something around the house, like, as a spirit, because he died. Wow. So OK, here are some entries from Lois's logbook. She says, I didn't finish the page in my logbook, and therefore I don't know why I wrote it. Felt a presence in my room last night. Perhaps I didn't care to describe it. Uh. And she's, by the way, she's in this room called the I room. And it's kind of at the front of the house. It's funny because Big E.D. calls it the guest room. And they'd had it cleared out mostly during the like renovations. But there was nothing really in it. So she really only came with a little cot, a canvas cot that she said was actually great for the flea situation. I'm sorry, the what? The flea situation. No. Yeah. I mean, when they were filming it, the measles had to wear flea collars around their ankles. I can't. (laughs) i know um okay here's another one she says one of the animals made a great deal of noise last night or was it the animals since i couldn't see them in a deserted room next to mine it sounded like a mattress being pushed and slid across the floor Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then this one is really interesting this morning a large puddle of urine suddenly appeared on the floor of the eye room i heard it pour on the floor and could smell it (gasps) a raccoon in the attic no doubt I looked up at the ceiling and found it was dry and clean. Nothing <gasps> odd, perhaps a spirit of some kind. Perhaps it was a ghost of the sea captain who Edie said built the house having some fun. He used to stay in this room a great deal before he died. I don't know of any sea captain who built it, but
1: I feel like it's Tom. He's drunk. Yeah. Well, she said she thought
2: it was Tom too, but Biggie was like, Oh, th- he would never do that. And I'm like, "Eh." yes, he would. <laughs> he was drunk. Yeah. And then she says, this is kind of a nice little sentiment. She says, it's impossible to worry. Some of the ghosts were so reassuring.
1: Mm, Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. And then another time she writes, this has been quite the eventful day for us, as it included a UFO sighting. Tell me more. (laughs) She saw orbs, I guess. And they actually called the police and they were like, there's a UFO over the house. Shut up. What is going on? I would love to see the police report. (laughs) I know. And then this is really creepy to me and I think it will be for you too because I know you're not the biggest cat fan. She writes, at least 15 kittens have been born here in the past couple of days, all inbred for many generations. They have strange feet, an extra toe, or a small paw. The cats are fascinating because of the inbreeding. I feel there is something of Pharaoh's Egypt in them. Perhaps they can communicate with the great cats of Egypt and are somehow bewitched, but we avoid discussing magic.
1: That's amazing. Mm-hmm.
2: And then, okay, she says that on her first night, she thought she saw a ghost And she recognized it as Big Edie's brother, which is Jackie O's dad, even though she had never met him. And this I think is the biggest twist of all. And she alludes to it throughout her memoir and finally kind of like reveals what she means. Apparently growing up, there were tons of rumors about Blackjack having an affair with, I mean millions of women, but also her mom in particular. Shut up. Yeah. Uh huh. And apparently, she never had a conversation with either Edie about it, but she says that Big Edie would sometimes like give her a certain glance that like (gasps) insinuated she, like kind of teasing her. She's stirring the pot. It would explain their kinship, you know? Wow. Juicy. Mm hmm. Family drama. And then, I mean, this isn't really about her ghostly experiences, but I just find it funny that raccoon Buster, who like led the pack, she would walk around at night with a helmet and carry a massive stick to scare off the raccoons (laughs) because she was scared they'd like fall from the ceiling and one time i think like a rat did fall from above which is my worst nightmare
1: oh no 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 hell no
2: yeah little edie was convinced that the fleas were coming from the hedges outside so she wouldn't let her open the windows and it would get so stuffy gross and lois was like no they were coming from inside the house those fleas so At this point, she's like, I kind of want to go. And she's been there now like 13 months.
1: So she was just a house guest this entire time?
2: Yeah, I mean, she was coming across hard times too. Like I said, she supported herself by reading poems. She was also a painter and she kept a little gallery where she paid a really small rent on. She didn't have a place to live during this period of time and she would bounce around with friends. So she wasn't that picky about where she lived and she was really low maintenance and would meditate all the time. The one thing she didn't like to do was feed all of the animals Mm. she describes it as if little edie did manage and keep up in the house including feeding all the cats oh my god separating the cats from mating all the time in the logbook, there's so many instances where big edie is like they're screwing again (laughs) pinky their favorite cat was like oh it really creeps me out but they would like have to separate them so little edie'd be running around separating the cats mating all the time i feel like she just doesn't use her time well
1: yeah, I mean get rid of the cats. You don't need them, you know? They loved the cats. And no, but that was the uh the parasite. Yeah, yeah.
2: Little Edie actually did say at one point, she was like, I don't think you should ever have more than five cats at once. So I think it was her mom who wanted all the cats. Yeah. But so as she was leaving, Lois writes, Perhaps I will leave soon. There seems to be a change. The house wants something. <gasps> And then she later writes, I have a feeling that a strong current, a stream of consciousness that runs through the house is moving me swiftly and gently from the eye room as if it were doing me a favor. I did wonder how the Beals would get along. I knew the terrible answer within a few weeks. As I packed, I realized a couple of ghost spirits were leaving with me and I was glad of it. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. So Lois leaves in 77 and she moved in with their other dear friend, Doris, who I'm not going to tell you all about her because it's too much, but she, I think, lived a more relatable lifestyle to us. But she was the only person who they would allow into their room outside of uh, Lois, as well as their handyman kind of person who replaced Tom, but he like also had a drinking problem and didn't actually really help that much besides patching up small holes and things. Mm. But she says, I had a strange feeling as if something must be wrong at the old mansion one morning when she's out of it at this point. And apparently the next morning when they call, they find out that Big E.D. fell out of the rolling chair and had been on the floor all night until police could come in the morning to move her onto the bed. And so she probably had a serious injury, like a fracture or something. And they didn't want doctors to come. All of their lives, they were pretty anti-medical world (laughs) In her journal, Little Edie wrote something where she was like, I just can't stand people who always run to doctors and they just don't really trust them. So eventually they called for Doris and Lois. And throughout, I think like a six month period, Doris was the only person they allowed to tend to Big Edie's bed sores. Ew. And meanwhile, Lois was noticing that Grey Gardens was completely deteriorating And she said that the house seemed upset. Well, I'll say. And I think it sounds like she's describing Big Edie too. Again, like just how in sync they are. And so at this point, it does sound like they're more like prisoners in this house. Little Edie will not leave her mom's side. People did try to help, but they just did not want to receive any kind of assistance. Lois was also making a lot of efforts to keep Jackie in the loop since her wealthy husband was the one who like paid for so much of the stuff. Wow. She wanted to help, but the doctor won't see you if the patient won't allow for it, you know? Yeah. Six months after that initial fall, things just got worse and worse. And eventually, Big Edie finally goes to the hospital when she knows she's about to die. She knows that it's going to create a lot of drama if they come to the house. She died at the age of 82 from pneumonia. Wow. And also, I think there was some sepsis with the untended wounds.
1: Mm, gross.
2: But little Edie did not want to sell the home to anyone who was going to demolish it. So she stayed in the house for about two years, like trying to find that unicorn person. And this was a really difficult period of time for her, I think, because she was trying to pay off some of the taxes from the state. But she eventually did sell the house in 1979 and also at that point was going to New York City to like do a cabaret show for a bit and gained some of her independence back. So let me tell you a little bit about the woman who bought the house from Little Edie. Her name is Sally Quinn. She's a pretty well-known reporter and she's written a few books. She was married to Ben Bradley, who was the executive editor at the Washington Post, like during the time of the Watergate scandal. Hmm. So they're a huge DC power couple, but a little bit about her background. She grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and she describes it like this. Savannah is a magical place. The romance of the moss cannot be exaggerated. One can believe anything when in Savannah and this book that she wrote, it's a memoir on magic. So she talks about how magic was kind of her first religion and it's what she was exposed to as a kid. And so she says she was surrounded by active ghosts as well as practitioners of voodoo, occultism, astrology, palmistry, tarot cards, and other psychic phenomena. She also claims that she led a quote-unquote life of spirits. And there she has some interesting ghost stories, one of them in her family's old estate outside of Savannah. They said that every time someone in the family died, you would hear ghosts dragging chains along the length of the hallway. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. You would hear people just sobbing and wailing all night, and then in the next morning, you would always see scratch marks.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: But she thinks that she's kind of a psychic. She's also put hexes on people. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Basically, she says that she learned how to do it by observing people in her community growing up, doing sort of like ritualistic practices. It involves some chanting. She doesn't go into a lot of detail about how she does it, but she does do it on a full moon. I think her husband made a joke once where he was like, yeah, I'm married to a witch. So it makes sense that she's the one who eventually comes to this house, right? She also really likes palmistry and loves a good Ouija board moment Mm. and like actually asks them for advice. One time she asked a Ouija board with the guy who she was engaged to, but didn't really want to marry. She was like, should we get married? And the thing said no. And so they called off the wedding. Listen, a no is a no. So a no is a no. And her connection to the Kennedys, it predates her time at Grey Gardens, When she was younger and she was watching JFK's funeral on TV, she said that that's what really showed her the importance of ritual and kind of made her more spiritual. And then also she wrote in her memoir, what I couldn't know at the time was that my future husband was involved with the Kennedys the whole time and he became really good friends with them and he wrote the book Conversations with Kennedy. I think it makes total sense that she's the one who was like, I can handle this house. She says the second she saw it, she felt home right when she got there. Yeah. So it was shortly after she and Ben got married. And she referred to it as a ruin saying that the real estate agent refused to go inside to show it to her. Wow. She wanted to go in though. So when little Edie opened the door and greeted her, she was like, hello. And wearing her infamous scarf around her head. And she did a little pirouette and was like, all it needs is a coat of paint.
1: (laughs) Classic Eloise.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And, um, her husband, Ben was also like really allergic to cats. So you are too.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I don't think you'd like it here then he walked out like choking within five minutes and he also found 52 dead and feral cats around the property.
1: Shut up. Yeah. That's, that's excessive. Like 52. I know. I know.
2: One of the things that's most interesting too about the purchase is that Sally paid for it herself, which I think Edith probably would have loved because that was not an option she ever had because she was cut out of her dad's will and wasn't able to pursue her amazing talents professionally. Sally actually used a lot of the original pieces in the home because when she bought the house, she told little Edie, you can either get it cleaned out broom clean, like spick and span, or leave everything the way it is. Wow. And little Edie, of course, is like, I'm leaving it
1: the way it is. Yeah, naturally.
2: Yeah. And so she goes into the attic and she finds just a treasure trove of old furniture. It's in bad shape, obviously, but like salvageable. Only the way that someone who can create a hex can probably salvage it. Yeah. She uses a lot of the old furniture and incorporates it into the design of the home and uses a lot of the old chintz, scrapes down the coat of paint to see the original wallpaper behind it to allow that to kind of inspire the wallpaper she's going to choose for it, which I think is such a nice tribute to the way that big ed would want it to be and then also just like a lot of random serendipitous good things happened when they were renovating that like you never hear of one time for example they needed to fix something on the roof and they were sitting outside she and her husband and this guy like emerges from the brush or whatever and is like you wouldn't by chance need some work from a thatcher
1: like what
2: i know and she actually verbatim writes the house was finished before the contractors said it would be, and it came in under budget. Thank you, Big Edie. And oh. <laughs> thinks that she was like making it all happen
1: for her from above. Definitely.
2: Which I think tracks, because Lois always says anytime there was any issue, Big e knew exactly who to call and what to do. So even though she was bedridden at the end of her life, if she had the funds, she probably would have been able to have kept it up. True. There's also a really cute little like guest cottage on the property that Sally used to read palms in and do tarot card readings. And she would play with her Ouija board in there and all of the kids and her family who would come to the house for the summer would call it the fairy house. And the whole place just sounds like really lovely and mystical. She also says in plain words, gray gardens is definitely haunted. One housekeeper was so terrified after a visitation that she quit. Mm -hmm. And she thinks that one of the ghosts is the woman I told you about way in the beginning of all of this, who ordered the concrete walls from Spain. Her name is Anna Gilman Hill. Sally says that one night she appeared to her like standing in the bedroom door in the middle of the night and she recognized her from a photo.
1: Wow. Was little Edie? Uh, Well, I guess it doesn't matter.
2: That's good timing because I was about to tell you during the early 80s, Edie was still thriving. She moved to California for a while then Canada and then eventually settled in Florida and didn't live with any cats when she was older and actually lived in like a very tidy little apartment in Ball Harbor, Florida and would swim in the ocean every day. She lived there until she died at the age of 84 in 2002. So she outlived all of her little brothers as well as her younger cousin, Jackie. And she remained close with a lot of their children. She also knew that the Broadway show was about to be produced and was like ecstatic about it, claiming that the theater is what got her and her mom through life. So Lois, Kind of opens up her logbook saying, I continued a close and personal contact with the Beals after moving out and still do. Although our contact now is totally spiritual. <laughs> and that is kind of like the end of the reign of the Bradleys living there too. They lived there throughout the early 2000s, but by 2017, Sally Quinn was ready to put the house up for sale and she held this like massive estate sale I think people flew in from all over the world, lining around the block to get some of that stuff. Yeah. Fun fact, my old roommate's brother, who's an interior designer, got a chair that was apparently donated to the Beals by Jackie O. And it was in our old apartment. Was it haunted? I actually think it had the best energy ever. The dog would always go under it. Okay. Maybe she was picking up on some of the smells. I don't know. But no, it was like the cutest little chair. I love it. And she says that she needs to reupholster it soon because it's ripping. And I'm like, frame the fabric and give it to me. Please, I'll do anything for that. Yeah. (laughs) But it sold to Liz Lane. She's a maternity wear designer who really took off in the early 2000s. And it sold for over $15 million. So very expensive home. It was only 200K when Sally bought it. Granted that was 1979, but still I think she had to put like more than double that amount into renovating it. Yeah. So she made a good chunk of change off of that.
1: Yeah. You're not kidding.
2: (laughs) And that also that 200K is
1: what kind of supported little Edie the rest of her life. I was yeah, that's why I was wondering like did how much money did she make?
2: Yeah. And then funny enough I met a photographer when I was on set for something else for work. I don't know why I was talking about them. I feel like I talk about them in my sleep, but I was talking <laughs> about little Edie's style or something and the photographer was like, "Oh my god, I just shot that house for a project and I think the attic had some creepy energy." And she showed me on her iPhone the photos that she shot. There was nothing in them weird, but it was still cool to see it. Yeah. There are no reports about any hauntings from the current owner. Maybe there will be soon. Maybe she avoids the press more. I'm not really sure.
1: Okay. Liz
2: also worked on a podcast about her family, which is an interesting overlap here. It's called Meet the Steinbergs, and it's about her family and She described it as a Sopranos, but wealthy Jewish family instead. And she did it with Ariel Levy, who's her friend, but also is a reporter who's pretty well known. And she also shared in a recent interview with the New York Times, or I guess semi-recent, that there's still a plot discreetly tucked away in the Garden of Grey Gardens that reads, Spot Beale, a nobler gentleman never lived, beloved by all who knew him, died May 29th, 1942. So they knew how to bury a pet. Yeah. But I just want to end with an interesting comment from Lois's memoir. She had asked her co-author, Tanya, who helped her write the memoir, to drive her over to Grey Gardens while the new owners were doing construction on it. And as she's about to get out of the car, Lois stopped her and she said, kind of frantically, I don't want to be here anymore. Can we just leave? The Beals aren't here and I don't feel comfortable being here because they're not here right now. Almost insinuating like sometimes they are. That's
1: really interesting. I want to go. This is one that I feel like I, well, um, if all the cats and everything's cleaned up, then I would feel comfortable going and just like checking it out.
2: I actually made my friend drive me by when we were staying nearby this summer and it was very beautiful. Even just from the new turquoise color used on the shutters, you can also tell that Liz worked with Jonathan Adler on the redesign. Wow. Yeah. There's so many little pieces to this. Every single name that I brought up, I wish that I could do a deep dive into who they are, what happened to them what their relationship was to the Beals, like a million different things, because there's so many characters. It's anytime you talk about the Kennedys in any capacity, there's just so many
1: tangents you can go on. Yeah, absolutely. Rabbit hole. I didn't watch this movie, but this was really interesting and I'm glad we talked about it. Good. Go watch the movie. You're not off the hook. I'll add it to my to-do list, I swear.
2: The good news is that we're not taking the spotlight off of Grey Gardens quite yet. So there is still time. You can still watch it because next week we will be releasing an extra episode featuring our interview with the one and only Sally Quinn. We are going to be talking to her about everything from her time living at the Grey Gardens estate to her experiences hexing potential DC ghosts, since that's the city that she's also based out of, and astrology. She loves it. Plus, we're all cancers, so watch out, and I can't wait. Please leave us a review if you liked this episode in the Apple Podcast review section, or really wherever you listen, and let us know if you have any theories inside scoop gossip. We always love that about anything we talked about in the episode, but especially Kennedy-related gossip.
1: Any Kennedy stories, send them our way. Yes. Thank you for listening. Thanks,
2: guys. We'll see you next time. And now some parting words from Little Lady herself.
0: I'll
2: Bye. Bye, Bill. Bye, Bill. All audio reporting that you heard in today's episode was brought to you by the films Grey Gardens, The Beals of Grey Gardens, and That Summer.